Hello and welcome to the Multiplanetary Society podcast, where we explore topics related to the space economy and the why and how of potentially becoming a multiplanetary species. I'm your host, Timothy Reuter. Today, we are pleased to have with us Dr. Philip R. Christensen. He is a Regents Professor and the Ed and Helen Porrick Professor in the School of Earth and Space Exploration at Arizona State University. Phil, welcome to the show. Great, thanks, uh, glad to be here. So I, I wanna cover some big picture questions with you about how space science is conducted and funded. But before we dive into that, could you describe a bit about your areas of focus? Uh, sure, uh, I'm a geologist by training. Um, as an undergrad many years ago, I'd always been interested in Mars and the moon. I grew up in the Apollo era. Um, and I, as I was becoming a geologist, I realized that people were just starting to look at the geology of other places like Mars. And so my career took a path from a typical geologist to a Martian geologist. Um, from there, I was got involved in some missions. And then in the last 30 years, I spent a lot of time building cameras and instruments to try to collect the data we need from these planets so we can address the, the key scientific questions of how they formed. And that's actually the perfect segue to my next question, which is your bio says that you developed five scientific instruments that have flown on NASA missions to Mars. What does it mean to say that you built them? Did you construct them, design them, get them funded, all three of those things or something else? Uh, it's sort of all three of those things. Um, you start the way NASA works. Hey, we're sending a spacecraft to Mars. The scientific community proposes instruments, cameras, spectrometers, radars, uh, and then they're they're selected. And I was had the good fortune of having an instrument, an infrared instrument, selected fairly early in my career. At that time, I literally was just a, a geologist, a scientist, and so I worked with an engineering firm in Santa Barbara to build a infrared spectrometer that let us measure the composition of the surface of Mars. That got me really interested in the engineering side of things. Um, since then, in the last decade, I've actually built a group of 15 engineers here at ASU where we do, we write the proposal, we get the funding, we conceive of the instrument design, and then obviously not me, but this group of talented engineers designs it, builds it, tests it, um, and then we put it on the spacecraft and send it off. And how different is it doing that for something that's going to go to another planet rather than just creating specifications for something that we'd use here on Earth? Um, to me, it's the fun part, right? I mean, sending things to another planet is challenging. Um, they have to be small. They have to be lightweight, they have to work, they have to be reliable. And so if you're gonna send something all the way to Mars, it takes a year to get there, you want it to work for five years. Building something that can do that and is you know the size of a you know a coffee maker that sits on your on your kitchen, that's that's really challenging. And it's a fun engineering challenge to try to balance what scientific measurements you want to make versus mm -hmm. what can we realistically get all the way to Mars. And there's a there's always trade-offs. You never get the perfect instrument because you can't, it's not, it's too big. You can't fit it. So you you what is this, what are the science trades that you make to fit within the reality of, of what you can fly? 
And what are some of the most interesting things that you've discovered through your efforts so far? Um, well, I've always, you know, I've, I'm fascinated with Mars and I've always been interested in Mars. Um, we've mapped the composition of the surface of Mars. And it turns out there are places where we see minerals that formed in, in standing bodies of water. When I started in this business 40 years ago, Mars was thought to be a cold, dry, dead place. All the action had occurred 4 billion years ago. Um, but we found that it's it has lakes and it had rivers and it currently has snow and ice and it has glaciers. Um, and so just that, how much more complicated the surface of Mars is than we thought, that to me has been a, one of the most one of the most fun things. And you know, literally, there's snow deposits on the surface of Mars that if you went there with a the shovel, you could you know dig down through you know six inches of dirt and be you'd hit you'd hit water ice snow. So it's it's that making Mars a real place. Um, that's mm -hmm. I think been the most fun part of my career. And if there was something specific you'd like to learn or discover that would be your crowning achievement of your career, what would it be? Well, the, the easy answer is, was there ever life on Mars? That's too easy. Okay. Yeah, that obviously, you know, that, <laughs> that's the discovery of the, of the millennium. Um, for me, it's just, what was early Mars like? Um Early Mars and early Earth were probably really quite similar. Um, you know, if I was standing on Mars four billion years ago, was it cold? Was it snowing? Was it raining? What were the volcanoes doing? Um, so my personal view, this is an opinion, <laughs> mm -hmm. Mars probably doesn't have life, but why not? So to me, that's the answering the question of where did the Earth go in one direction, and Mars went in a different direction, even though they both started off really similar. Why doesn't Mars have life? And what does that early environment of Mars tell us that, oh, that was what was missing. Earth had this and Mars didn't. So that, that early, you know, just what was Mars like early on? And are you saying that you think it doesn't currently have life or that it never had life okay well th there's another really complicated discussion life as we know it I, I i pose this to to students in various classes could you if you were a diabolical mad scientist could you extinguish all life on the earth my view is absolutely not mm -hmm. okay no matter how hard you tried somewhere in some little lake in you know south america there's going to be a little bit of algae that you miss and that okay yeah. so once life starts on a planet can you ever get rid of it so if mars had life in the beginning it might you know, maybe it should still have today um but e either one is an interesting question and and um obviously the search for life is incredibly important. We're going to continue to do it. It's one of the most interesting questions you can ask. But let's say it doesn't, it never did have, have life. Mm -hmm. then I think it's just as interesting a question is why the heck not? Well, right. you know, what was it missing? Because if you stood on Mars 
four and the earth four billion years ago, they would be remarkably similar. No, that that's great. And and we're we're gonna circle back to this topic later on, but I don't wanna go too far down that road quite yet. Um now getting more into sort of the the structural questions about how space science is conducted what would it take to accelerate progress on learning about these topics that you were focused on what what would allow you you know and your colleagues to do more so the the again well the limit is how complicated a, a robot can you send to Mars? And we've sent some insanely complicated ro rovers and other spacecraft there, but even those are limited. Um, you can't really send the instruments you want. You can't really make the measurements you want. And so there's, there's two ways to go. One is you send much more complicated, bigger, more sophisticated robots. Mm -hmm. Or you do the ultimate and you send humans, okay? Mm -hmm. um, as a geologist, I love these rovers, I work on these rovers, but you know, two days on Mars and a good geologist could figure out what a year's worth of a rover has figured out. I can pick up a rock, break it open with a hammer, look at it with a hand lens and go, nope. And a rover might take a month to do that same task. So A, you'd send humans, but that's insanely complicated. Or you just send, you know, more complicated, more complex missions and you send more of them. Um, yeah. I don't want to belabor this too much, but imagine if you could put go to one place in the United States and say, okay, I'm going to understand the US. Where would that be? Right. Okay. Would it be New York City or would it be somewhere in the middle of the wheat fields of Kansas? And so what we're doing at Mars is we're landing on two or three places on this immensely complicated world and saying, oh, now we understand Mars. No, we don't. <laughs> we understand New York City or we understand, you know, uh, Yellowstone or we understand the plains of Kansas, but we don't understand the whole place. So more missions, more complicated, go more places. I mean, do you, th so th there's obviously a big debate about whether it's worth sending people places versus robots. And purely from sort of a scientific perspective, do you think it's worth the resources to send people, right? Or will that just accelerate science so much that it's worth the cost? In my view, yes. Okay, I, I fully understand the complexity of that. I I'm a you know, I'm I'm a robotic you know I, I do robots. Um, mm -hmm. We'll learn a lot, and we should continue to do that because it's going to take a lot of resources to get humans there. But humans on Mars, even humans on the Moon, humans various places will be a true game changer. Um, we will will just accelerate. Um, you know, the, our, our knowledge by orders of magnitude. Um, the challenge, of course, is, you know, Moon and Mars are almost the only places you can realistically send humans, right? right? We can't go to Venus, we can't go to Mercury, we can't go to the moons of Jupiter. Um, 
So in the near term, robotic exploration is absolutely essential and we need to get better at it. Um, but if you really, to, to answer the key questions, like is there life on Mars? I, I think you may end up having to send humans and the abilities for them to make quick decisions, cover terrain, make, you know, just do what humans are good at to really answer that question. Yeah, where does most of the funding for what you do come from? It almost all comes from NASA. Um, we have had the great fortune of having one project that we've done with the United Arab Emirates. They sent a mission to Mars a couple of years ago and we were part of that. Um, but other than that, everything we've done has up till now has been NASA. Um, we're you know, obviously looking at talking to people in the private sector, um, but up until this point, it's been NASA. And why do you think that it's almost all government funding? So when I, I look at, say, sort of deep water science, it seems like there's a lot of philanthropic money going into that. Why isn't there a similar dynamic? And, and what does it mean to talk to people in the private sector? Great questions. Um, we, you know, again, we've been talking with people in the private sector. Um, There's no profit, near-term profit in science, okay? Mm -hmm. um, and so much of the private sector is looking at resources. You know, can we, can we mine various surfaces? Uh, mm -hmm. Is there a tourism aspect uh, to it? But just, I wanna go to Mars to understand the atmosphere and its climate. There's no, money mm -hmm. to be made in that maybe someday but at the present and so most groups aren't you know they're not going to just do it for the for the sake of humanity um and the other problem is it's, it's extraordinarily expensive i mean a, a low yeah. cost mission to mars is 500 million dollars okay that's an awful lot of philanthropy right. um just for the sake of learning more about the Mars atmosphere. So it's, I think we'll get there eventually, but up until now, it's, I think it's the, just the cost has, has been prohibited. So as you said, most of the money for space science is essentially government funding. You know, how should we think about what the right amount of funding is for these kinds of activities? You know, is it, are we at the right level right now? Should it double? Should we cut it in half? How do we think about what the number should be? Um, I just spent I spent a couple of years as part of a National Academies group that does a decadal survey. Every 10 years, they do a survey for NASA and say, what should NASA's goals for the next 10 years be? Mm -hmm. And we recommended a budget, which is 20% higher than what it's current, NASA's currently spending. Mm -hmm. So I think we're close to the right level. Um, you know, it's, it's NASA spends $350 million a year on planetary science. Okay, that's, that's a lot of money. Um, wait, am I? Yeah, I think that's right. My mind just, just slipped a gear. Um, anyway, I, we're close to the right amount now. We could, if you doubled it, scientists could easily find great things to do with that. Mm -hmm. But at some point, 
you're sort of at the limit of how many engineers and how many scientists, you know, how big the community is, how is it right. sustainable? So I think we're, we're, we're close to having a really strong scientific community, a really strong engineering community that are asking really exciting questions about, you know, other, other places in the solar system. Um, so I think we're close. No, that, that's a really interesting framing. So you're saying that, you know, we have, a limited absorptive capacity to actually do things. And we've actually seen, so you're not saying that. Okay, well, I'm, no, glad no, I, I just, I'm doing that in my head. I I'm, I was off by a, a, a factor of 10. It's it's more like three and a half billion dollars a year is what NASA is currently spending on. Yeah. But, okay, sorry. Um, you're no, that, 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 that's okay. I mean, just, I, I want to make sure I have the front. You're saying, you know, given the number of scientists and engineers and the talent pool that's out there, that's about what they can absorb and, and do useful science. Although presumably over time, that would expand if there was more money because this is pretty aspirational stuff. There's more people who want to do it than there are resources to fund them. That's absolutely right. Um, and and the, 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 the challenge there is, can you sustain that? Um, you know, once you've created those that those communities and you've inspired them, then you know they're going to want to keep doing it, and they'll come up with really great questions to keep asking and asking and asking. So, I, again, my my personal view: if you look at the amount of money we spend on on missions relative to the U.S. economy and what we spend on other things, I think the U.S. public is getting a tremendous return on the investments that we're making in, in planetary science. Um, you know, the, the, the missions are expensive, but we're a wealthy nation. And, you know, I, I do think um, the return is, is, is tremendous. So how, how should we think about the, the social value of this? Obviously money is fungible. We could be spending it on other things. Um, what is the case for spending $3.5 billion on space science? I think it's a couple of things. One is you you truly are improving humanity's view of where we fit in the universe, in the solar system. I claim that understanding the, the history of Mars and life there is a, it's not just an interesting esoteric science thing. It, it really gives us a fundamental understanding of where we as humans fit and where we came from um more at more practical levels the climate of mars has changed dramatically over time understanding that i think is really important as we try to understand changes in our in the climate on our own planet uh the concept of greenhouse effect came from the study of venus mm -hmm. which is the classic greenhouse and you know my God, it's 800 degrees on the surface of that planet. So I think it, it gives us a perspective and a knowledge that lets us do a better job of managing our own planet, understanding uh -huh. where we come from. At a different level, at a different level, you're training a group of scientists and engineers who are problem solvers. Uh -huh. And the group of people that I work with that put instruments in orbit around Mars to study the atmosphere, 
Those same people can put those same instruments in orbit around the Earth to study our atmosphere and its changes. And, you know, so you're, you're creating this cadre of people who think about planets and their problems and their issues and what measurements need to be made. And so I think that's a societal benefit that now you've got this group of people that can really study our own planet from space and tell us what you know what are what's changing and what we need to to do to to to, to modify it or keep it from changing. And that, that's a great lead into my my next question, which is, what do you see as the relationship between space science and space industry, or sort of more direct economic activity? I I think you know this is history has shown that, that science leads and industry follows right behind. Mm-hmm. That as we learn more, say, about asteroids, mm-hmm. oh, they have really valuable mineral resources on those asteroids. So this, the science is leading what are asteroids made of and why, but then industry comes along behind and says, hey, we could mine those and get really valuable uh, resources out of them. So I, I think the science leads, and then naturally, industry and, and the human inventiveness of what can we do with this information is going to follow. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it's been very interesting to sort of see over the past decades, you know, what's happened with fundamental physics. And there was a time when, you know, people said, no physicist has ever done anything that you know was relevant to anybody. And then quantum physics was discovered and we changed the the face of warfare. And we're gonna get a great movie about that in about a week. Yeah, and just simple things like the LED lights. Okay, that's you know, that's fundamental atomic physics. So yeah, I I, I do think I'm a huge believer in fundamental science will lead to things and you don't even know where it's going, but stand back and watch and it'll lead to some exciting things. Yeah. So how does the science community think about technological change and how it affects the missions they can conduct? They're very excited about it. Um, You know, we've sort of been stuck for a while in chemical rockets and solar panels and, you know, the things that we know how to do and we're good at. Um, I really think we we need to think about new forms of energy in space. I think we need to think about reusable spacecraft, not just reusable rockets. Um, new ways of getting places faster with, you know, solar electric or nuclear electric propulsion. Um, so I, I really do think the science community is very open to new technologies that will allow us to do things faster and, and send more complicated devices out, out into the far reaches of the solar system. No, not, not to be too coy about things here, something that you and I are working on, it's exploring how scientists might use nuclear technology to design new types of missions. Can you share a few thoughts about what going faster, having a hundred to a thousand times the power budget, being able to send more mass and the types of things that nuclear power and propulsion would enable, what could that potentially do for space science? 
Well, I think the the most important one is just get there faster. Okay, we're about to launch a mission to Jupiter next year. We have a camera on it. It takes seven years to get there with the current. That's launching on a really big rocket. What if it could take? Okay, okay. So for many people, it takes seven years to get there. You collect data for a couple of years. You think about it for five years. Then you plan the next mission. There's another five years. So we're talking a a 20 plus year cycle of idea, measurement, new idea, new measurement. If you could make that cycle one year or two years, then you're really doing what scientists like to do, pose a question, answer it, pose new questions. Getting to the really far reaches of, you know, like Enceladus, which is, you know, uh, crazy far away, that's 15 years to get there in a current chemical rockets. That's one mission per a scientist's career. Right. And that's not how to do science. So getting there faster would just change. Oh, ask a question, get an answer, ask a new question. The same thing with these rovers. I mean, we we build instruments that, you know, a lab version, you know, sits on a on a lab bench and costs 80K. I built one to go on a Mars rover and it was this big. And it cost 10 million, mostly because I had to shrink it down and simplify it and make it rugged. Imagine if I just had the mass to fly the, the lab version. You know, I could do it for 10 to 100 times cheaper. So more mass means less time spent miniaturizing and ruggedizing and all that effort. So, you know, having semi trucks driving around on mars as opposed to you know golf carts would just change what you could do yeah and i mean even sort of more broadly how do you as a scientist think about designing for this right i mean you you can put in proposals to nasa that are very futuristic and incorporate a lot of technical risk or you can do something that's sort of more of an iteration of something that already exists, just how do you actually decide how you're going to approach this? Well, unfortunately, and experience has shown that the incremental low, relatively low risk approach usually wins. Mm -hmm. Um, These missions are expensive. They have to work. You can only take a certain amount of risk. And so you end up flying incremental improvements as opposed to vastly new things. Um, I have no problem with that approach, but it's definitely, you know, you write proposals that sound like, yeah, they could, they could, I know they can do that. And that's going to be a winning proposal. It's It's a challenge to walk in with a crazy idea that's never been done before. Um, and how hard is it or easy is it for maybe sort of the, the typical space scientist to say abreast of what is or isn't possible? I mean, you know, we, we talked about nuclear, you know, how would a you know, scientist know about what is over the horizon and how to design for it? I, I think that's a that's one of the real challenges. Um, you know, most scientists 
you're trained as a scientist and you, you use the data that are available. You maybe build an experiment, but oftentimes, you know, I, I use what's available from a catalog. I can go buy this spectrometer from a company. Um, so most scientists aren't really trained to think about technology and how to incorporate it and, and how to advance it. So we need to get a generation of scientists who do think that way, who are asking, okay, this is what's available, but this is what I need. This is what I want. How do you get me the data I want? And, and most scientists aren't trained that way. So we need to do a better job of connecting the technologists within the aerospace NASA world with the scientists. And, you know, that's just education, just bringing those groups together more and talking more what ifs. And now we're going to transition to the uh, wild, irresponsible speculation portion of the uh, conversation. So if you had to make an educated guess about life off Earth in our solar system, do you think there is currently life outside of Earth uh, well, here or was there previously? There, in my view, there's absolutely life outside of Earth. I mean, you look at one you know, Hubble image of the galaxies and you say, well, of right. course we're not alone. <laughs> it's too big. Yeah. In our solar system, I'm betting there is, okay? Mm -hmm. It might be on Mars, mm -hmm. but I bet there's these, there's these crazy moons like Europa and Enceladus and others that have these warm liquid oceans. And by golly, if, ocean, if life on Earth started in a warm liquid ocean of water and you've got that sitting out there at Europa or Enceladus, I would say there's pretty high likelihood that there is life in those oceans. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think it's, if I had to bet my dime, I would say yes. <laughs> and any guess as to what it might look like? I'm guessing it's gonna still be pretty simple. I mean, even life on the Earth, it took a really long time to go from simple organisms, you know, multi, you know single cell, multi-cell organisms to complex. I mean, a biologist, and that's really crazy. I mean, the simplest organiz, organism you can think of is really complicated. All the stuff that goes on in an algae, just, you know, cell membranes and DNA and nucleuses and dividing and, I mean, single cell organisms are crazy complicated. Um but I doubt there's whales swimming around in the oceans of Europe, but who knows? Yeah. And what do you think would be the significance of discovering life off Earth? I mean, I can I can sort of see half the people saying this is the biggest thing, you know, ever, and half the people not being that interested. So how, how do you think about the significance of this? I, I, I think it would be huge. Um, we can speculate, I can say silly things like, oh, you look at a Hubble image and of course we're not alone. But until you prove you're not alone, you're still alone. <laughs> and yeah. you know, you can speculate all you want, but demonstrating that within our tiny little solar system, there's life somewhere else that evolves separately from us. Holy mackerel. I mean, that says there's the, there's, the universe is teeming with life. It's everywhere. Um, I think it might take a while for that to sink in, but, you know, it's sort of like realizing that you live on a sphere, not a flat, not a flat surface. That probably took a lot, a while to sink into people, but 
once it did, it really kind of changed your, oh, this Earth is not the center of the universe. We are a tiny little planet orbiting the sun. So again, I, I think these things are, they take time to really, really wrap your head around what it means. But I, I think most people would get it like, wow, this is, this was a game changer. Yeah. And let's say, you know, a, a, a truly rich head of state or a philanthropist, you know, somebody with over, you know, access to over a hundred billion dollars in, in capital came to you and said, you know, let's do a, a private mission that figures out in a more detailed way whether there is or was life on Mars. I mean, obviously it's very hard to prove a negative, but let's make a big stride. Um, you know, how much do I need to, to give you to actually accomplish this? Ten to twenty billion dollars. Okay. Okay. The well, so my personal view is you you go to a lot of places. My well, my favorite mission of Mars, which I would love to live to see, is a you, you take a rover and you circumnavigate the planet. You know, it's it's the Lewis and Clark expedition goes to Mars. Mm -hmm. And you think about what that expedition learned, and they didn't have a lot of scientific instruments. They didn't, they didn't, you know, but they just observed. And so imagine if you could just drive around the, the equator of Mars and look at every place and under every rock and every nook and cranny and look at lots of sedimentary rocks and layers. I bet you'd you'd, you'd learn a heck of a lot, um, you know. And that's a five five billion dollar mission. And, you know, again, in NASA's you know, approach to things, um, you know, low risk has to work. So that'd be a start. And then just, just characterizing what's there. Just, wow, we see these sedimentary rocks that have these real interesting structures in them, or we don't. Or So I, I think there's things you could do at Mars that didn't require bringing humans there or tons of rocks mm -hmm. back that would be really informative. Well, what if we don't have to do it though the the NASA way? Like I am just I'm going to give you this money, and I'm trusting you. You don't have all of the sort of reporting overhead. You don't have to go through contractors in the traditional way. Does that significantly change the amount, or or maybe they do all the things they do for good reason, and it has to be that expensive? I think you could cut it in half. Mm -hmm. I don't think you're going to go by a factor of ten. Um, my experience has been that a lot of what's done is done for a really good reason. There is undoubtedly unnecessary reviews and unnecessary paperwork and unnecessary oversight. Um, but we've tried to look at some really low cost uh, approaches and they're, they don't work well. They're not reliable. They don't last long. They, they you know, and so I, I think, you know, factors of two or three cheaper, yes, but I, oh, I can do it for a 5%. I, I, it's just hard. It's hard to, yeah. it's hard. Although cutting it in half is significant. So you, you gave a range of 10 to 20 billion. Um, you know, I, I'm rich, but I don't have infinite resources. So I'm just gonna cut you, Phil, 
Dr. Christensen, a check for $5 billion. I mean, does this mean now you really can do some amazing science that gives us a significantly deeper understanding? I, I think you could. You know, um, the, the, the trick with my goofy idea of driving around the equator, that's a long, that's a long drive. And so you need a rover that's that's pretty reliable and probably has spare parts and is capable of fixing itself and you know has a couple extra tires in the in the trunk and so that's not a trivial uh, device and I've got to get it there and I've got to land it safely and you know so that's you know the current NASA rovers are two and a half billion for what they do um, you know if you gave me a check and I could do it my way I might be able to build what I want for a couple billion. But yeah, it, it's not going to be, oh, give me a hundred million and I could do it. It's 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 tricky. Right. There's, there's there's a lot of money out there. There is. There, there are there are things you can do, and there's a, a wonderful group of really smart uh, people who are thinking about low cost missions to Mars. What could you do for a hundred million dollars? Mm-hmm. And you could do some pretty exciting things. But a, a rover that could drive for ten years may not fit in that in that in that category. Do you think it's worth pursuing becoming a, a multi-planetary species? I do. Um, I do, and I think it's inevitable. We will. Um, it's just a matter of the time frame. Um, yes, I, 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 I think it's important. I think it's good for our survival. I think it's good for just the human curiosity. Um, I would really hope we do it carefully and intelligently i mean if there is life on mars or in europa let's not wipe it out by taking our viruses there and just right them off. so let's let's be careful and thoughtful about how we become this multi-planetary species let's let let live and let live um yeah. but i think it's inevitable that we will do you have a, a favorite piece of fiction, either book, movie, or something else related to space? Yeah, you know, I, it's funny. I I, I don't. I'm, I'm not a big, huge science fiction writer. I, I really did like, you know, Arthur C. Clarke. Um, mm-hmm. um, I actually uh, liked, you know, the book and the movie, just The Martian, which I, I loved because it was technically feasible. Um, so I, I tend to gravitate more towards science fact, you know, that what, 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 what fits within the, what we can do rather than, you know, you know, fantasy and things, but okay. I need to read and more. There's, I mean, there's more books out there than we could ever read in a, in a lifetime. Um, before we, we wrap up, is there anything else that you just want to share with the audience? Anything that comes to mind? Just, I, I mean, space is inspirational. Exploring mm-hmm. it is inspirational, and we we need we can't lose sight of that. And you know, if we can't excite younger generations of of students and scientists and engineers and entrepreneurs uh, about space, and we're and we're doing something really wrong. Um, if if you're not interested in whether there's you know squid in the ocean of Enceladus, then I, we're not doing our job of, of capturing the, the excitement and getting people inspired about what, what could be out there. So 
I, I hope people continue to think of space as a really exciting place to continue to explore. Well, that, that's a great uh, ending point. So Dr. Christensen, thank you so much for being on the program. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you to Dr. Christensen for joining the Multiplanetary Society podcast. And thanks to all of our listeners. Once again, I'm your host, Timothy Reuter. If you like this content, please make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform to ensure you don't miss an episode and leave a review to help other people find it. If you have any feedback or guest suggestions, please feel free to email us at multiplanetarysociety, all one word with no dashes, at gmail.com.